the story that um, Alison read out, thank you, uh, opens with this manager or agent in trouble. He's in trouble for unwisely using his master's money. And um, he was behaving as the youngest son. Um, Aiden, can you click back on? I need to... Thanks. There you go. Um, he was behaving as the younger son, if you remember last week, the prodigal son, the younger son. That's sort of how the manager's behaving. Uh, and that's the connection here to this teaching. It's about not squandering your opportunities. In Jesus' day, wealthy landowners often turned over management of some of their money to an agent who was responsible um, to invest that money and make more money for the master. Today, a stockbroker or banker or a financial advisor serves clients in similar ways. Um, there's no indication in the parable whether the agent failed his master innocently or deliberately. Um, and really, that's unimportant. For whatever reason, his boss fired him and asked him to turn his account books over. Um, th that would show what he had done. And so before handing his, o his books over to, the, uh, to his master, the agent decided to do something that would enable him to get another job with one of the people who owed money to his master. He realised that he had to use his head since he wasn't strong enough for manual labour and was too proud to resort to begging to earn a living. His plan of action would guarantee him a job and respectability, but he had to act immediately. And so the agent, he said it's about this plan to um, discount some of the debts of the people who owed his master money. And what he's probably done is cancel the interest that they owed. And in doing so, he's reduced what was quite a large amount that these people owed um, and therefore the discount each one received represented a significant amount of money and certainly would have brought him goodwill and favour from those who were in debt to his master. And the debtors, they were probably people who had received goods from the master's estate, sort of like on a line of credit, if you like. Um, and that was and is still a standard way of doing business. So basically what the agent did was refund the commission that he would have personally received from all of his transactions. His master still gets what he is owed and so he deals with integrity but he forgoes his personal profit to instead buy favour, if you like, from those he was trading with that they might then show kindness back to him in return, both in personal hospitality and potentially in a job or, or future business dealing, depending on where he ended up. Now, was the steward charging above market rates to make more profit for himself to begin with? He could have been. That might have been why he got the sack. Or maybe he was charging illegal interest on top of his fee or commission and so therefore bumping up the prices for the consumer. We don't hear about those sorts of things these days, do we? No. But maybe that was the reason he was fired. Oh, we certainly don't hear people being fired for those sorts of things these days. Um, 
maybe that's what has happened. We, we really don't know. But verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Jesus commended the agent's shrewdness or prudence, if you like, his practical wisdom in spending his wealth, so those commissions were his, in spending his wealth to secure his future. So he could have just taken the money and that would have been a little bit of money for him and then when that money was gone, that was it. But what he's done is he's spent what little money he would have had in commission, he's actually then invested that, if you like, into his future prospects, securing his future. He didn't, of course, Jesus didn't, of course, approve of the squandering of his master's money earlier, which has marked this person as an unrighteous man. And there is a contrast for us to see in his lack of shrewdness when working for his master compared to his shrewdness in securing his own future, which makes this turnaround even more commendable, if you like, on the, on the practical wisdom scale. And the sons of this world spoken of here are unrighteous unbelievers who simply live by the principles that govern most people in our world, power, possessions and pleasure. Sons of the light, in contrast, are people who live in light of God's revelation, believers in fellowship with God. And Jesus makes the point that prudent dealings most often characterise unbelievers and that we can learn and would do well to learn from them as we anticipate the future. People of the light should be as shrewd in their kingdom investments for God as people of the darkness are in their business investments for themselves. Jesus then explains the application of the parable for his disciples. He says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, I don't know about you, but that whole sentence is weird. What on earth does that mean? The translation is clunky and difficult. I want to clear it up for you. Unrighteous wealth refers to worldly or material wealth. So we might consider that money, if you like, today. Um, potentially mammon, right? So things like property, possessions, cash, assets, inheritances, salaries, earnings, all of that, right, which contrasts with heavenly treasure. And when he's saying when money fails, it's another one way of saying when you die. Because when you die, money no longer works for you, right? It has no use or value to you. So that's when it fails. So um, it has no use for a dead person. So what Jesus is teaching here is that even though money will fail us when we die, those whom we have led to salvation will not die. They will welcome us into eternal dwellings in contrast to the temporal ones we have now. Does that make sense? Does it? There's a few still looking puzzling at me, right? So even when money will, f will fail us when, it, when we die, those whom we have led to salvation will not die 
and they will then welcome us into heaven, our eternal dwellings, in contrast to our temporal dwellings which we currently live in now. That's the crux of this. So Jesus contrasted the temporary nature of money with the eternal value of saved lives. So where should our investments be? Jesus is saying to his disciples that they should spend their money to make friends who would welcome them into the kingdom of heaven when they die. In other words, disciples should sacrifice their money to bring others to faith in Jesus and so secure a warm reception into heaven. Partnering in gospel works. As disciples, we should use our money to lead people to Jesus Christ. We should not consume it all on ourselves or pass it on to our heirs or hoard it, but invest it into the Lord's work. Now, I'm not saying that you, have, you leave no inheritance for your children, right? Don't get me wrong. What I'm saying is that you shouldn't use all of your resources for those things, but we should invest in the Lord's work. One commentator said, a foolish person lives only for the present and uses personal wealth only for the present. A wise person considers the future and uses personal wealth to reap benefits in the future. Jesus taught this lesson because the Pharisees had a money-grabbing reputation. That should not characterise a disciple of Christ. He continues teaching on this parable, focusing on faithfulness and loyalty to Jesus. He says, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? Who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another's, who will give you that which is your own? See, faithfulness, it does not depend on the amount you are responsible for, but on your character. Faithfulness in the use of money demonstrates a trustworthy character that God will reward with responsibility for greater riches in the kingdom. Unfaithfulness does not just demonstrate untrustworthiness, but unrighteousness. And this is not just money, but in all worldly things. I often use the three T's to cover all of that, time, talent and treasure. So if we squander what God has entrusted to our care on this earth, our time, talent and treasure, do you think that God will then give us our own things to manage in heaven, such as authority over others in the kingdom? Those are all roles that will be taken. I don't think so. So faithfulness to God in what He has given us now is the point here. Charles Spurgeon, he preached to thousands in London each Sunday. Yet, do you know where he started his ministry? He started by handing out tracts and teaching Sunday school classes as a teenager. When he began to give short addresses to the Sunday school, God blessed his ministry of the Word. He was invited to preach in obscure places in the countryside, 
and he used every opportunity he was given to honour the Lord. He was faithful in the small things, and God trusted him to greater things. He said, I am perfectly sure that if I had not been willing to preach to those small gatherings of people in obscure country places, I should never have had the privilege of preaching to thousands of men and women in large buildings all over the land. Remember our Lord's rule. Whosoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. It's, it's amazing when you look back at the life of someone like Charles Spurgeon, that you can see the pattern of faithfulness from a young age, and God blessed his faithfulness. Verse 13, Jesus says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So, is Jesus saying you've got to give up all wealth, all worldly wealth? No, what he's saying, isn't that we have to give up all of our earthly resources to follow him, in fact, he uses the word mammon to refer to our earthly resources. And he's saying that we must be faithful to God with our mammon, with our earthly resources. And some believers are blessed with great mammon, and that's okay. Some believers have lots of mammon. Wonderful. Blessings to you. Some believers are blessed with a little amount of mammon. So, it's not the amount of mammon. In fact, in God's sovereignty, He gives some people great earthly resources and others not. We just trust Him in His sovereignty and all of that. But what is clear is that it is impossible to serve both God and mammon. Love for God will result in mammon taking second place in life. But on the flip side... If you put mammon first, then God can only have second place. And this fact should serve as a warning against unfaithfulness to God and as a warning against enslavement by mammon. And the test for us is not what we work hardest for. As many of us invest a lot of hard work for our employers or in our businesses, which is rewarded with mammon. But the test for us is this, are we faithful to God with that mammon? Are we faithful to God with our time that we spend as we earn that mammon, with our talents we use which produces that mammon, and with our treasures that result from that mammon? Are we faithful to God with that mammon? See, we can only be the servant of either God or mammon, so which are you choosing? Is your focus solely tied up in the next business deal, in, in the next paycheck, in the next thing that's going to earn whatever's going to happen? Is that what our focus is? Our focus is climbing the career ladder, investing all my time and talent and energy into that next promotion so that I can then have that more mammon to, you know, the, 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 the terminology that is nice these days is to provide for my family. But is that what your heart is? 
or are you just in it for mammon? Or with that mammon, are you faithful to God? That's the test. We can only be the servant of one. And if you choose mammon greed, then you will receive a rebuke from Jesus just like the Pharisees do. Verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him and he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. That's a strong rebuke from Jesus. He rebukes his critics for their hypocrisy. See, they were able to explain their covetous practices to the Jews, most likely reasoning that any wealth that they could accumulate was a sign of God's blessing on them. This, is a, this was a common misinterpretation of the law in Jesus' day, as it is in ours. You know what the prosperity doctrine teaches? Is that if you are faithful to God, you will be blessed with material possessions. Now, I'm sorry, but does that sound right to you? It doesn't sound right to me. All that sounds like is being trapped on am I good enough? How can I earn God's favour? What can I do so that He will bless me? That's religion, that's not the gospel. And material wealth as the sign of God's blessing is false theology. Now, I'm not saying that all material wealth and blessing is wrong. As I said, God sovereignly chooses to deal that out to His people. But are we faithful with that? Don't judge your relationship with God by how much mammon you have, is the point. See, the Pharisees had these ostentatious displays of fake generosity, which was part of their hypocrisy as well. But God was their real judge. He knew their greedy hearts. What many people value highly is the pursuit of money. But that is detestable to God because it is idolatry. It robs people of their future and it insults God who alone is worthy of our utmost devotion. And Jesus illustrated this point with the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which follows, which we'll actually get to next week. See, the Pharisees' values were all wrong. What really mattered and what they should have concentrated on was the kingdom and God's word. And Jesus teaches in verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. See, the Hebrew scriptures should have been of primary importance to the Pharisees. They pointed to the coming Messiah. And since John the Baptist had come, the message that he and Jesus had proclaimed had been that the Messiah was present and the kingdom was at hand. A new era had begun with John's preaching, not the kingdom. The Pharisees had disregarded that preaching and in doing so had rejected the teaching of the Old Testament even though their fellow Jews were trying to get into the kingdom. Jesus' point here was that many of the Jews were eager to enter the kingdom, but the religious leaders were hindering them 
by rejecting John and Jesus' ministries. They were putting barriers between people and Jesus. We should never put barriers between people and Jesus. And regardless of the Pharisees' view, the Old Testament would stand as the final authority. Verse 17 strongly attests to God's preservation of Scripture, with the implication being that Jesus' teachings would likewise also endure. And then Jesus uses an example to show how the Old Testament continues to be valid and how the Pharisees were disregarding it. Verse 18. This might be a challenge for some. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. God still expected and expects submission to his word. The Pharisees didn't condone adultery, though they did permit divorce. Some of them permitted a man to divorce his wife and then remarry another woman. Though most of them didn't grant women the same privilege. Jesus condemned such conduct as a violation of the seventh commandment. This was an example of the Pharisees justifying themselves in the eyes of men, but not being just before God. And Jesus both affirmed and clarified the Old Testament revelation. And so for the Pharisees to disregard his teaching about money was the equivalent to rejecting other divine revelation like divorce and where would they stop in denying god's word in disregarding god's word by their own justifications to allow them to do whatever suited them almost sounds like a certain king of england who wanted to divorce doesn't it oh well i'll just do my own thing and make my own thing until i can do what i want justify what i want to do but the raise is a question for us in the church today is divorce wrong Simply and plainly, divorce is wrong according to God's word. According to God's design, marriage is until death do us part. His design for marriage is for life. That's why I always say to couples, and I said it yesterday, that love is a choice, not a feeling. There are plenty of times when we don't feel love towards our spouse, And that's when we choose to love them. Because that is what we vowed to do. That is the faithful thing to do. Faithful to our spouse and faithful to God. So divorce is sinful in God's eyes. It does separate us from Him as He has revealed it to be against His good plan for us. And in Matthew, when Jesus gave the same instruction, Jesus included permission to divorce when unfaithfulness had occurred in the form of adultery, a breaking of the marriage covenant of faithfulness. So if Jesus teaches divorce is wrong, why do the statistics on divorce hardly change from inside the church to outside the church? Why do Christians still get divorced today when the Bible is clear that it's wrong? Well, let me make something clear. In case you haven't already understood, we are all fallen, sinful human beings. Sometimes those sins will lead to divorce. 
And at the crux, the root of all divorce is selfishness. I choose to live for my pleasure and my desires and my choices rather than choosing to remain faithful to the Lord and to my spouse. When someone is violent towards their spouse, which is never okay, they are being selfish and not being faithful to the Lord or their spouse. When someone sleeps with someone who is not their spouse, they are being selfish and not being faithful to the Lord or to their spouse. When someone chooses that they just don't want to be married to their spouse anymore, they are being selfish and not being faithful to the Lord or to their spouse. Now that might seem to oversimplify the myriad of issues that lead to divorce. But if you do boil them all down to their root cause of each of those things, it's selfishness, being selfish and not being faithful to the Lord or your spouse. Sometimes it's one person in the relationship, sometimes it's both. Either way, divorce should never be considered an option for Christians, which is why it's so important that when you choose who you're going to be married to get to, that you make a God-honouring choice and that God is involved in that choice and that you believe you are following His will so that your marriage can stand the test of time because a cord of three strands is not easily broken when it's you, your spouse and God. Divorce should not be in our vocabulary as Christians, but Jesus does recognise our fallen reality. And here's the great thing about the gospel though, even our marriages can be redeemed by His grace. I'm not judging anyone here today who's been divorced or separated or whose marriage is struggling. I, like Jesus, recognise the pain and hurt and the sad reality of fallen, sinful humanity and how that affects marriages. It can get messy. But Jesus can redeem your marriage or marriage failure. He can heal you of the hurt and give you hope for your future. Our part is to confess the sins that we have committed, the selfishness that has been our part to play. Ask for His forgiveness and forgive your spouse or former spouse. Ask for God's healing and then remain faithful to the Lord and open yourself to the future that He has in store for you as His faithful servant. For some when I say God can redeem your marriage, it might be your marriage. For some, it will never be that marriage, but it can still be your future. So the basic application of this teaching from Jesus is to respond with obedience to the kingdom demand for ethical integrity, whether it be in how we deal with our resources or how we approach our marriages. See, being faithful is not just for our marriages or for our finances, but it is a virtue that demonstrates ethical integrity. As disciples, it is a measure of our obedience to Christ. 
Mark Hatfield, a former US senator, tells of touring Calcutta with Mother Teresa and visiting the House of Dying, as it was called, where sick children are cared for in their last days and the dispensary where the poor line up by the hundreds to receive medical attention. Watching Mother Teresa minister to these hundreds of people, feeding and nursing those left by others to die, to die Hatfield was overwhelmed by the sheer magnitude of the suffering that Mother Teresa and her co-workers faced daily. So he asked, how can you bear the load without being crushed by it? And she replied, my dear Senator, I'm not called to be successful, I'm called to be faithful. That remains our calling today to be faithful, faithful with a little, faithful with a lot, be faithful, be faithful in your marriage, be faithful in your service, be faithful with your time, talents and treasure, be faithful. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that we would each take on the message of today, that message of being faithful. The Lord, in our faithfulness to you, would be just as shrewd as that manager when his future was on the line. That, Lord, we also likewise would deploy the practical wisdom that establishes a healthy future for us in your kingdom. That we would be faithful with the resources that you've given us and that, Lord, you might entrust greater things to us as we demonstrate faithfulness to you. Lord, I also pray for all those people here who have been through divorce, are going through divorce, or their marriage is struggling. Lord, I pray that you would heal hurts, that you would bring forgiveness, and that, Lord, you would redeem futures. We entrust these to you. Our response is to be faithful. And whatever is before us, Lord, may we always choose to be faithful. And whatever you're leading us into, may we be faithful. In raising our children, may we be faithful. In our workplaces, may we be faithful. In our studies, may we be faithful. In our interactions with those around us, may we be faithful to the call to share the hope of Christ with everyone we meet. May we each be faithful. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.